Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, is it time to review the speed limits along 400 series of highways? Apparently, they were built for 120. William Barr, the Attorney General in the United States, testifies before the Senate, but has a different interpretation of the Mueller report than the guy who did it. And Alex Trebek has been very candid about his battle with pancreatic cancer, including the deep sadness and depression he feels after chemotherapy treatments. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, is it time to review speed limits along the 400 series of highways? Uh, Jeff Urich, Transportation Minister, says they're planning to review the speed limits uh, on some of these 400 series of highways, but we'll consult the public first. Also talking about uh, a pet peeve of mine, keeping right except to pass. Uh, some say this is good, some say not so good. Uh, I'm guessing many say probably not so good. I don't know how we feel about this anymore. Uh, it used to be an issue, well, I guess it's been an ongoing issue for, for a long time. Let's bring in uh, Joe Catu, Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police, and is with us now. Joe, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, thanks for having me, Scott. It seems that this uh, discussion comes up every every few years or so. Um, are the are the highways designed? Are they are they capable of of handling traffic at 120 k speed limit? Well, in a nutshell, yes, they are because I think uh, let's just be honest. A lot of people are doing 120, and uh, it seems to move along just fine. Uh, but the, the, the speed limits are not designed with. Are, are the, the roads capable? It's part of it. It's part of the engineering that goes into it, of course. But what uh, we are talking about, and I think the government is certainly talking about as well, is how do we get people to move efficiently but safely? So it, it's, it's perfectly fine to have the conversation. The minister was quite uh, clear, I think, in terms of saying they will have the consultation with the public, but also with the experts. Our officers on the road are very eager to tell their story about what they actually see in terms of speeding. And uh, 100 is the uh, the speed limit, but uh, speeding is a huge, huge issue for us. Our concern, of course, is that if, if we increase the speed limits and, and people are going 120 now, they'll think if the speed limit's 110 or 120, they can go 140, which right. we know speed kills. Uh, it's interesting the way, though, you've approached this, um, because it's, it seems it's less about speed and more about driving habits and how we can mm-hmm. get the traffic uh, moving better. But, however, you know, you see a headline that says we're going to increase the speed limits to 120 and, and people just kind of go off the deep end. And you also brought up an interesting point about talking to officers about how they feel about all of this. Is there a better way, as you said, to move traffic more efficiently um, in some way we're not doing now? Well, uh, yes, there is. I mean, technology is the obvious answer. And I know governments, all all parties, they don't want to hear this. But we have to have the conversation again if we're going to talk about uh, speed limits is we're going to have to have the conversation about photo radar because we simply can't be putting our officers out onto uh, highways. They're already uh, under threat from uh, people not, uh, you know, moving over when they're doing uh, our officers are doing their, their, their jobs. Um, and uh, if we're just going to increase speed limits and people are going to go even faster, this is a problem. So if, we, if we're serious about getting the bad drivers off the, uh, of the highways, the ones that are cutting people off, that are, are, are excessively speeding, that are putting people in danger and our officers, well, let's have a conversation about photo radar because technology does exist. 
right. that if we want to get those uh, off the, those people off the road, uh, we can do it. But that's a very uh, you know it's a difficult conversation for political uh, uh, representatives because people don't like it. And but you know our business is not about public uh, liking us or not. Of course, we want the public to like us, but it's about keeping the public safe. You know, I rem- I'm old enough to remember this discussion the first time around when we had photo radar and then had it taken away. Uh, do you think attitude is changing on this because of technology? Because, I don't know, it just seems to be an answer to a lot of these questions that you're bringing up. As you can tell, I'm fully for it. I have no problem with it once, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, no problem with it at all, especially when, you know, you're marking the road, you're telling people, at least I remember that in the old in the old system, you were telling people that, hey, you're entering a photo radar zone. So if you're stupid mm-hmm. enough to keep driving and get and get caught, that's your problem. Are we in a different yeah. place right now, do you think? Well, I think we have to have that conversation because, remember, the photo radar last debate was back in the 1990s. Yeah. And the world's changed quite a bit. And, of course, there were real problems with photo radar back then in terms of, you know, the moving ban and people saying, you know, it was, it was a bit unfair and things of that nature. So these are, these are absolutely... Uh, uh, important issue that uh, we all have to address, and we don't want people to feel like they're being, um, you know, this is another form of taxation kind of thing. That's typically what we, we heard, right? Um, but what we do want to say is, look, how do we get people on our roads to move quickly and um, and efficiently, but those people that um, that choose to speed, that choose to drive recklessly, who do distracted drive, all that kind of stuff, how do we get them to understand that they will be punished for those bad behaviors. Because that's what we have to call it. It's bad behaviors. And speeding is just one of many bad behaviors on the road. Is the biggest reason for not having this the fact that it, it just looks like a cash grab to people. And and again, I have no problem with this because if you're going to make people pay, I, it's better to have people pay that aren't about abiding by the laws. So again, I have no problem with this. But is that the major reason that you're hearing? Oh, yeah. It's, it's always been about people feel that they are being unfairly, uh, I call it tax, right? But it's, uh, you know, yeah. punished for, for that kind of... Because so there we, isn't a physical officer there writing them a ticket. Yeah, well, the problem we, we have with physical officers being, you know, writing tickets is physical officers cost a lot of money. Exactly. And we, we, we get told all the time that, you know, you cost too much, you have to cut costs. Well, it doesn't make any sense for our officers to be out there when the technology is available. Red light cameras are exactly the, this is the debate we had. People are now used to red light cameras because they understand what they're there for. We don't have an officer on a corner aiming a speed gun at you or, or, or pulling you over. They're doing more important things rather than writing speeding tickets. Uh, you, you brought up the red light cameras, which, again, are the exact same sort of thing. I guess the only way public the public justified this was simply because um, there was just so many accidents and fatalities with pedestrians yeah. and such. But, you know, I, I had forgotten about that. But there's one right there. Red light cameras. Also think about when security cameras first came out. People were mm-hmm. outraged. They didn't want Big Brother looking at them. Now no one cares about it. Everyone's got one in their phone. Is it the yeah. Will we get to the same place with photo radar? I mean, especially when you bring up red light cameras, it's basically yeah. the same thing. Yeah, basically. And, and I think, the, again, the conversation needs to happen. And I think it's very important, for instance, that the privacy commissioner be part of that so that uh, people feel that their privacy is being protected. And so it's, it is up to government. And I think the minister, in a way, has done us a favor by opening the debate about road safety and how to, how to, better, to do it better. 
and more efficiently and effectively. So if that's part of the conversation in terms of speed limits, then I think it's, it's a very worthwhile conversation. And again, speed limits, raising speed limits, there's a big debate about it, but there's also very good studies out there. Uh, and so everything that we do from now on has to be evidence-based. And we're trusting the government is interested, as we are, in evidence-based policymaking. Joe, what about different speeds in different lanes? Is that worth it or is that too dangerous? Well, again, that, that requires a lot of studies because we have different types of roads across the country and certainly across Ontario. Um, and, you know, a road going north is very different than roads in the greater Toronto area and then the Golden Horseshoe area. Right. And so um, when you start getting down to that level, I think you'd have to ask the questions, well, you know, what's the purpose of having some lanes faster than other lanes? Right. We already have signs that say, look, if you're a slower moving track, traffic, you know, keep to the right, you know, and uh, does that work? Do people follow that? Uh, yes and no, I guess. It. <laughs> mm. People are people. <laughs> uh, talk about that, because they're increasing the fines about keeping right to pass. Uh, obviously, there are laws on the books for that. I mean, I've seen people in the HOV lanes driving slower than the traffic in, in the other lanes, which to me just yeah. drives me nuts. Um, yeah. What about this? Is there anything we can do to... It seemed we, we were a li- little bit more courtesy 10, 20, 30 years ago. I remember these signs up saying, keep right, except to pass. And I remember my parents, when they would drive to Florida, they would say, you know, they've got this down right here. Everybody pulls over to the right, bah, 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 bah. The interstate system is way different than the 400 series of highways. Yeah. Is there more education needed when it comes to something like as simple as this? Well, I mean, education is always good. And uh, I mean, we're in a, in a couple of weeks during police week, which takes place in the second uh, week of May. We're going to be talking, we're going to be doing our own drive safe campaign and talking about distracted driving. So that's all part of an ongoing education that we and government and community and safety groups do. Um, the problem I think we have today is that there's a lot of frustrations on the road. Uh, roads are clogged. Uh, people are frustrated because their lives are, um, you know, so congested on, on, on their own. Yeah. And the pressures in today's families and people going to work and, and commuting, I mean, all of these things add up to impatience. And so this is what you find, I think, a lot on the road. Our officers always tell us, you know, that sometimes it, it's not that uh, people are intentionally being bad. But it's all the pressures in life yeah. are getting to them. So, you know, they, they don't obey the simple rules of the road. If you're in an HOV lane, you should be there. You should be driving appropriately. And if you shouldn't be there, don't be there. Um, it's as simple as that. Joe Katu has been with us on Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police talking about the discussion that will open up uh, in regard to the speed limits on 400 series of highways. Joe, thank, uh, Joe thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for your time. You know, I was, I was, uh, well, I wasn't surprised. I was surprised by uh, Joe Catu, the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police, wasn't dead against the increasing in speed limit and was happy the conversation has been opened up because he feels there's lots of different ways to get the traffic moving more efficiently, uh, not only with increased speeds, but just in some of the practices we have. Uh, and I didn't expect that. I just expected him to say, nope, slow it down, slow it down, slow it down. Um, so that being said, it shows you that this discussion is a little broader than just the speed limit itself. Uh, let's bring in Chris Kilomat. He is from stop100.ca. Get his take on all of this. Chris, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hello, Scott. So what is stop100.ca, Chris? Uh, we've been fighting for about eight years now, and actually, you know, it's more than 40 years, really, that it's been going on uh, since about 1976. 
that's when uh, the speed limit was actually dropped from about 112 to 100. So it's kind of funny that uh, 40 years later, with much better cars, much better technology, much safer cars, in, in, in com- you know, incomparably safer cars, we're actually looking at a much lower speed limit now that turns virtually every driver on the road into a lawbreaker. Hmm. Uh, so our mission, is, our mission is do not make safe driving illegal. So we're very happy to see the government's announcement, and uh, we've been at it for about eight years, since 2011, stop100.ca. Our mission is very simple. Post proper speed limits based on science. Do not punish, do not criminalize safe behavior. Um, I remember this being an issue even back as far as the 1970s, but it wasn't about speed and accidents then. It was about conserving fuel, wasn't it? Absolutely, and this is kind of where the whole speed kills propaganda started. Because uh, because what uh, what happened was the speed limits were reduced um, due to uh, um, the the embargo oil embargo. Yep. So there was a shortage of fuel. So it actually started in the United States. Yeah, everything was uh, 55 and, at yeah. one time. Exactly, and it dropped from something like 75 or 80. So from about 130, they dropped it to 90, and then a bunch of groups jumped on it because they didn't want to uh, you know see the speed limit go up when the embargo ended. So they said, oh, look how many lives we've saved, you know, by pe- forcing people to do 90, which was all complete nonsense. It was not true at all. The, um, but Canada kind of followed suit. I'll give you an example. Uh, a couple of European countries, the, uh, I, I believe it was Switzerland and Germany as well, for some time, they also lowered speed limits. But guess what they did? Four months later, they brought them back up to 130. They did actually bring them back up. We never brought them back up. So, uh, do, do you think this time out, it has th- this discussion has legs, or is it different in Southern Ontario because traffic's so congested here? I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure we'll see uh, the QEW or the or even the 401 go up that high just simply because of the amount of traffic on it. But certainly, uh, highways outside of uh, of the GTHA. Uh, do you think there's a Do you think there's a, an appetite for this now? No, absolutely. It will happen. Uh, it will happen 100%. Uh, question is, what's exactly going to happen? So I'll say what should happen. The government should be looking at a proper and scientific method of setting speed limits. So this is not anybody's, you know, kind of, you know, random idea. Let's post 100. Let's post, post 110. Mm-hmm. What be happening is, let's look at the data. What is the 85th percentile speed, which is, which is a proper engineering method of setting speed limits? That's our only mission here. You don't look at the traffic. You don't look at the, 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 the width of the highway. You look at what most of the drivers would be doing mm. absent the speed limit. That's how you measure actual realistic uh, travel speeds. And the data is showing us that across Ontario, including actually metropolitan areas, there's actually nothing different about that. 407, as you may know, flows very fast between 120 and 130 all day long. It has a tendency to be less congested, though, simply because it's right. a toll road. For sure. Which for is sure. a drag so, in itself because, you know, if it wasn't a toll road, then it would actually be freeing up traffic on the 401, and we'd really see some, some relief right. here, but that's another story. But then you also have to look at, you know, times when it's not... So, so the speed limit and congestion really have nothing to do with each other because when it's congested uh, and it's a bumper-to-bumper traffic, you could have a speed limit of 150, and yeah. nobody's even going to go 40, right? Yeah. So one has really nothing to do with, with the other. However, when the highway is flowing smoothly, what you end up doing, so there's no congestion on it, which happens quite a bit off, you know, off-peak and in the evenings, at nights, in the, you know, early mornings, you know, on Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, what you end up doing is you're criminalizing safe behavior. So people who, uh, the gentleman before me spoke about frustration, I wanted to jump in and say part of the frustration is actually people going too slow yeah. uh, and, and being afraid of the police and, and, and clogging, you know, the highway. 
because they think they're going to get nailed for 115 or 110, so they're going to go 110 when the rest of the traffic wants to you know, going 120, 130. That's when the frustration really, really blows, you know, up and and kind of uh, you know increases because people are at risk of tickets for something that shouldn't uh, be considered unsafe because most of us know that 120 is not an unsafe speed. What about those that say speed kills? The faster you go, the greater the stopping distance, the bigger the hit, all that stuff. I have a great example for this one. Uh, imagine flying on a plane and the engine goes out. So you fall to the ground and you kill, you know, you, you kill 200 people, right? What kills you? Was it the engine or was it the gravity? You could make an accident, you, you could make a case that the gravity kills you. It wasn't mm. the engine, right? Mm. I mean, why did you fall to the ground? Well, because gravity pulled you to the ground. So it, it, it's com- complete nonsense. Uh, the cause of the crash was a broken engine, not the gravity. Likewise, when you're going at a safe and reasonable speed of 120, which is what the highway is designed for, you shouldn't be making an argument that speed kills because I could say, well, why do we build superhighways? Yeah. Why not just keep building very small, tiny roads, which will prevent you from ever exceeding 60? Right? Complete nonsense. It's a misinformation campaign when people use the slogan, speed kills. Uh, the interesting thing I thought Joe Coutu said from the Ontario Association of, Association of Chiefs of Police is, it, it for him, it's just about getting traffic to move more efficiently uh, as well as speed. Are there other ways to do this? Other than speed, what about lanes, lane choice, keeping right to accept to pass? Should should different lanes have different speeds? Well, absolutely. I mean, for example, uh, oftentimes we see uh, today is uh, trucks, uh, let's say there's a three-lane highway. So the right lane is actually open because the truckers are trying to be nice to the people merging, right? Mm-hmm. So the truckers will actually occupy the middle lane, which only leaves one lane for actual traffic. Yes. Right? So, I yeah. mean, that's one example here. But again, our mission with the speed limits here is... Uh, is to make sure that people are not afraid to drive at a proper and reasonable speed, and, and, and they are currently. And, and I'll give you one more example, what's, what's, what's the benefit of, of, of setting a proper limit. Uh, you're going to keep more money in people's pockets, which means the economy is going to, uh, to, to benefit from that, because currently people are being targeted for 115, 120, 125, 130, depending on the mood of the officer, essentially. Hmm. If the officer or if you know, the force feels like they need to do, you know, up enforcement, you're basically taking money from people who you shouldn't be taking money from. So local economies are losing the money, and, and, and that actually creates, you know, lost business opportunity right there. The Association of Chiefs of Police also brought up uh, things like photo radar uh, in order to free police up to do other things. Your thoughts on that? There's a very easy answer to this. Uh, you don't need to go through, uh, you know, to extreme measures like photo radar uh, when the speed limit is set properly which means with accordance mm. to the 85th percentile. And that theory says that you set the speed limit at the level where... Right. What about the argument... Not breaking it. What that about the argument... Police, yeah, what about the I, argument, I'm, I'm Chris? Finish this because that, that frees up police resources because yeah. they're only focusing on the remaining 15% of speeders, right? So one police officer can do much more valuable work yeah. in the given time because he's not looking at 100% of drivers exceeding the speed limit. Uh, sorry to interrupt. I'm just short on time here. Uh, what about, uh, they, they, and, and we'll, leave it, we'll leave it go with this question, what about the, sure. those that say 120, if you post at 120, they'll go 140, 150? I'll, I'll, I'll simply guide them to the uh, abundance of data from BC, from Utah, from Ohio, from Michigan. Many jurisdictions raise the speed limit, including our own BC. They've noticed absolute no change in actual 85th percentile speeds. Uh, police officers have, have, have contributed many statements through the media to us. We have abundance of quotes, completely untrue. People do not drive faster than they feel comfortable with. So just because you post 180, 
probably nobody will be even be doing 180. Most people will still stay at the safe and reasonable speed because you and I want to reach home safely. Wouldn't that be an, wouldn't that be an interesting experiment? Just put it up to 180 and see what we get. Uh, well, Chris, in Germany, there's no speed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Chris Clement's been with us. Stop100.ca. Chris, thanks for the time and insight. Thank Much you appreciated. So much, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. William Barr, Attorney General for the United States. William Barr testified before the Senate yesterday in regards to the Mueller report. Uh, beforehand, a letter by Mueller had been released where he said that Barr did not uh, uh, was not happy with his uh, his interpretation of the report. Uh, Barr refused to show up for the House today. Uh, this was after uh, yesterday him saying that uh, when asked about Mueller's reaction to this, um, uh, Barr alluded that he hadn't heard from him when obviously uh, that wasn't the case. To talk more about all of this, Reggie Giacchini is with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington. He's with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. All right, so this is this is starting to get really complicated now for a lot of people to follow. Uh, break down Attorney uh, General Barr's time before the Senate, uh, the Senate committee yesterday. Your view of how this went down. Well, this went down mostly how we expected it to. It was drawn, uh, you know, along a line through the center where the Democrats really went after uh, the attorney general for uh, his comments on on the investigation, for his comments on Robert Mueller, for his comments on how he was describing the president. Republicans, on the other hand, completely uh, took the opportunity to just change the page on this and started going after, uh, you know, former FBI investigations, the investigations into the investigation that the president wants and started uh, invoking Hillary Clinton. Uh, into the conversation. So this was very much a two-sided uh, uh, conversation as to what was going on. Uh, when it came to the Democrats, though, they really grilled into the Attorney General based on how he perceived wording when he was speaking to Congress the last time he was there, how he uh, kind of roundabout discussed and, and detailed uh, the, the Mueller investigation when he put those principled conclusions out there. And basically what happened yesterday wasn't able to happen today because, like you said, he just didn't bother to show up. So what's the reasoning behind that? Why did he not show up today? Does that uh, allude to the fact that he got a little hot yesterday? Well, the reason that he is saying that he didn't come and speak to the House today was because they wanted to uh, kind of uh, uh, parse up the day and take a little bit of it and have their uh, their uh, staff members and some legal people inside the congressional staff do some questioning of the attorney general. And he decided that, well, if you're not elected to Congress, if you're not an elected member, I don't want to have to answer any of your questions and basically said, because of that, I'm just not going to show up. Uh, he was called out very quickly on it because in the past uh, we've had congressional members and and congressional uh, people bring in lawyers to do questioning. And you just have to think back to uh, the Brett Kavanaugh issue when the Republicans brought in a lawyer to do the questioning of Christine Blasey Ford. So there is some people, there are some people that are calling out to the attorney general for this move right now. But what it's done has kind of really invigorated Democrats to push further into their investigations. So his non-appearance, uh, it may, may come back to bite him. It very well uh, may come back to bite him because Democrats have already said, look, by not showing up today, uh, you're proving to us that you're either hiding things or that you just don't want to have to have a, a real conversation with people who are going to press you uh, when we are the majority inside the House. And that's why you had people uh, getting up today, up to and including Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who, uh, you know, kind of took to the podium and said, well, look, what happened yesterday with the attorney general? Is he lie? He, he basically uh, proved to us that he lied to Congress, which is a, a massive crime for somebody to uh, accuse 
accuse somebody of and not having him come and speak to the house today didn't allow them to kind of elaborate on that or get further answers from him. Okay, so on that note, uh, it seems our attention's moving more to Barr than the Mueller report or the, or any th- actions of the president. Um, so obviously there's a contradiction over a note that, uh, that uh, a note to Attorney General Barr from Mueller saying that Mueller uh, wasn't happy in the way that Barr had uh, represented the report. Uh, I guess Barr was asked at a previous uh, committee meeting uh, what Mueller's reaction was to this, and he said he didn't know when clearly they had communicated. How is that playing? How is that damaging? Is the, what does that say? Well, I mean, this all comes down to uh, to, to to words and to how uh, kind of words are being interpreted. You have to remember that William Barr has been a lawyer for a very long time. He understands the English language very well. So basically, when it came to the question about this uh, conversation that he may or may not have had when it came to Robert Mueller, according to the Attorney General, he says that the way the question was asked to him, it had to do with the Mueller team. And because it wasn't asked to him, you know, did you speak to Robert Mueller himself? And it was just kind of thrown out as, as a kind of a, an umbrella term, he says, well, I answered the question correctly because you asked me about the Mueller team. I said, I haven't spoken to the Mueller team. So now you have Democrats saying, well, this is simply splitting hairs. You purposely, if that's the case, misled Congress when you were giving that answer, which is why Democrats are trying to drive home this point of saying, look, this attorney general sat here before Congress once before to defend the president, and he's continuing to sit here to be the president's defender and not the people's lawyer. On that note, uh, obviously the wordsmithing that's being done by the attorney general, is that better than giving the actual answers? I mean, in the end, the optics, uh, clearly the optics, well, can be interpreted as keeping Barr away today. Is he better just not to come clean on this? I mean, how damaging is this to him and his once once uh, much respected career? Well, this could be incredibly damaging to his career going forward because having not shown up today after kind of mincing words and and doing all this hair splitting yesterday, we now have Democratic uh, people inside the House basically saying, well, look, we are going to put a subpoena out there. And if you do not comply with the subpoena that we're going to put out there, we could hold you in contempt of Congress. And that would be a huge blemish on the, uh, you know, big career that that uh, that uh, Barr has had for the last number of decades. If you sit there and you find yourself in contempt of Congress, there are things that can happen to you down the line, up to and including a potential uh, jail sentence, which is likely not going to happen. But there is precedence for this because Attorney General Holder was held in contempt of Congress a number of years ago when the Republicans were trying to go after him for uh, not releasing information from within inside the Justice Department. So Democrats have some uh, some uh, abilities to move forward on this because of what the Republicans have done. So what the Attorney General really needs to do is come forward to be able to speak. Democrats are saying, look, we're giving you a couple of more days to to reverse your decision, come give us the answers that we would like to, uh, you know, be asking questions of, and uh, and and see how that goes forward. But you know, this is going to be a fight going back and forth. The White House is now getting involved in this. So what we thought would be a kind of wrapped up conversation today has barely just begun. So how do voters break this down? Again, does it does it depend on which side you are uh, are on, which is pretty much the way we've answered all these questions since he became president. But 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 how how do how do voters break down fact from fiction, politics versus policy? 
Well, I mean, what they need to get over first is is this exhaustion that they are feeling uh, from basically the day one of when Robert Mueller was appointed and started this investigation. This is all the uh, this is what the American people have been dealing with on a near daily basis now for roughly two years. So if they are not exhausted by this yet, they now have another opportunity to have to sit here and sift through the details. And this is a delicate uh, uh, tightrope that uh, that Democrats are going to have to be walking now as they go forward. Do they solely focus on, uh, you know, going after Robert Mueller? Uh, rather going after William Barr, potentially trying to go after the president even further? Do they potentially open up an impeachment proceeding into William Barr if they, in fact, do believe that he lied to Congress? These are things that that uh, could backfire on Democrats if they spend too much time focusing on this and not more time focusing on what matters to the electorate. So this is going to be a big thing that people now have to sit there and read both of the details and Mm. then sit there and try to figure out what they want to do politically moving forward. Um, uh, as we, as I mentioned before, it appears that we're talking more about Barr now than we are about the actual report, what happened, or about the president. Um, is this a distraction? Is this designed to distract us away from everything else? Uh, is that the intention here by Barr, do you think? Well, I mean, it is possible. We have seen from what Democrats have been saying and from the words that the attorney general has been speaking over the last couple of weeks that he does tend to side more with what the president feels and how the president uh, would like things to be going forward. We knew already that the president wasn't happy with his former attorney general, uh, which uh, when Jeff Sessions stepped down. So we now know that he has an attorney general who he likes, who he feels is looking out for him. So by Barr kind of, you know, stonewalling certain things and, 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 you know, parsing words and trying to kind of split hairs between what one person is saying, what, what, he, what he actually meant, it allows for, yes, a distraction to move forward because it allows for the president then to either focus on other things while people are still focused on this William Barr, Robert Mueller investigation. Uh, Democrats, though, they're trying to crack that shell. They're trying to say, look, there are things that we need to get at right now when it comes to this, but we can't lose our eye or take our eye off of that ball, which is eventually going to be the president in the election next year. Did most expect more from Barr? Did they expect he would go there? Uh, it depends on who you are. Republicans mostly uh, expected what William Barr did because he is a Republican. He has been known to kind of uh, be a big backer of Republican presidents. Democrats basically knew what they were getting when uh, when William Barr was appointed to this job. You have to remember, he put forward this multi-page kind of uh, a letter to the White House last year. But it was basically explaining why a president couldn't be uh, you know, charged with obstruction, how uh, presidents can you know, essentially become off the hook because the law can't really go after them. So People on both sides knew what they were going to be getting when William Barr sat down. What they're seeing now is what happens when you have a you know multi-decade uh, career uh, official in the legal department in the in the legal world, knowing how to use the language to benefit both himself, his department, and the White House. Uh, his term uh, w- when he was talking uh, about Mueller, he used the term um, "snitty." That he's called the letter that he had penned "snitty." Uh, that kind of comment. What does that say? Well, that kind of reaction is some, or that kind of uh, uh, comment is what Democrats would have liked to have been able to get some reaction to if he would have sat down today. Basically, what what the Attorney General was saying was, "Look, this rep- this letter was handed to me. This letter that I said that I didn't receive because you didn't ask me about it correctly. But the wording inside of it, maybe it was just written by a staff." member because you have to remember last month we started to hear some rumors from within inside the Department of Justice that people weren't happy with the way that those principled conclusions were uh, kind of put forward by uh, William Barr by saying look they took this year and a half long investigation kind of muddied up the words they kind of omitted certain things that made it seem like the report was different so he's basically saying this letter that was given to me yeah it sounds like the people that were inside of the department but nobody was able to actually ask him about that today because he didn't show up 
So what happens now? Will uh, Does he have to show up? Will he show up? Uh, is, is is he out now? What, 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 how does this move forward? So Democrats, there are some Democrats, Kamala Harris included, who is a presidential ca- uh, candidate, uh, have already said, go, number one, they would like to see uh, William Barr resign from his position. That's likely not going to happen. What could happen going forward, and this goes back to, you know, is this something that people are focused on and what happens down the road? If they decide to take a, uh, a legal action uh, about this, the, the House Democrats. We could find William Barr, yes, uh, in contempt of Congress. There could be subpoenas out there. But this all needs to work its way through the court system. And we'd be looking at, you know, many months down the road, potentially into early 2020 before any answers are put out there. So William Barr could sit there and ride high for the next few months inside the Department of Justice, kind of carrying out what he needs to do while this works its way through the court system. Again, giving people nothing more to focus on other than that as Democrats really try to push to get into the election and put the, uh, the issues that they want to talk about on the table. Does this take away uh, attention from the president? Well, the president has been trying to take the attention away from the president over the last couple of days. Uh, he kind of went on a big tweet storm, or at least a retweet storm, over the last 24 hours when it came to trying to fight back against the unions, which was a bit of a fight with Joe Biden, trying to say, look, uh, firefighters across America, I'm here for you. Don't listen to what your unions are talking about. That's what he was focused on kind of yesterday morning and, and the night before as William Barr was preparing to go and speak to the Senate. So the president's doing what he can to distract the situation while the attorney general tries to do what he can to also distract the situation. When will we, why don't they just call Mueller? Why, like if we brought Mueller in, would we not get the answers to all these questions? Why does that not happen? And the Attorney General has already said that Mueller is free to come and speak. Now, whether or not the President will try to get in the way of that, we, we, this this letter that the White House counsel put out today says that the President going forward very well could assert executive privilege to try and stop any kind of ex-administration people from being able to speak more. That's something that we have to watch. Uh, what we're hearing is that there is a possibility for Robert Mueller to be heading to the Hill possibly in and around May 15th to speak to uh, people in the House, because we've already heard from a number of senators uh, on the Republican side saying, look, this report is out there. What Robert Mueller did is 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 in paper now. It's been memorialized and it's over for us. We don't want to have to have him come and speak. So while he may not head to the Senate, he very well may head to the House and speak sometime in the next couple of weeks to try and A, clear up the air about what his report actually says, but B, try to clear up the things that they weren't actually able to talk to the attorney general about when it came to their conversation. Will the president's try? Will the president try to stop that? And my goodness, what would that look like? What are the optics there? Well, I mean, it is possible. The president has already said on the record numerous times in front of a camera that he wants that he wanted the information out there. That if Robert Mueller wants to testify, he should go and do that. The attorney general has already said that he's fine with with Robert Mueller now. So what's holding testify. Mueller back from doing this then? Well, he has to be invited to council right. or to uh, to Congress, and right. that's what he's waiting on, on on members on representatives to be able to put that invite out there. There are some, you know. Uh, procedural things that need to happen in order to get that uh, that kind of invite out there and get a day set aside for him to come because they only meet on certain days of the week. So that's why we're hearing that it could be mid-May when Robert Mueller heads to the Hill. Wow. This just keeps getting drawn out and drawn out and drawn out. Um, uh, so uh, at the end of the day, uh, Trump has always called this a witch hunt, and it's, this is just a bunch of Democrats who are after him. What's the history of Mueller? Uh, of Mueller? What's his background? 
Well, Robert Mueller, it was a leader inside the uh, inside the FBI. He was the FBI leader for a number of years. He has a very uh, lengthy and, and kind of uh, very you know robust legal background. He, it's, he's not somebody who just kind of sits there and writes words down for the fun of it. He wrote down an incredibly lengthy report. He put a number of details down there. One of the reasons most people are saying that he didn't come to any kind of conclusion uh, is simply because he was following the rules. He was following Department of Justice guidelines that say you cannot indict a sitting president, which is why he kind of left it out there by saying, well, look, this doesn't exonerate the president. It might exonerate him. You know, he's kind of laying it out as a roadmap, as certain Democrats have been saying. And that's where some of the big fights are happening right now, because, again, it's supposed to be independent uh, of, of politics right now. But what Democrats are saying is, well, look, he laid out this roadmap for us to be able to take this into our own hands and, and go after the president in, in a political kind of way. But he also, Robert Mueller, used his words properly by saying, look, I'm memorializing all of these words in paper right now in these, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages because eventually Donald Trump is not going to be in office and these kind of uh, uh, you know policies that protect mm. a president when he's sitting don't follow him after he leaves the office. So this is a way for people to kind of continue the conversations maybe next year or maybe in 2024. Is uh, Mueller Republican or Democrat? Mueller is a Republican, which is why the president always kept saying, you know, why this he is keeps calling these. Is that why he keeps calling everyone a Democrat then? Like, this well, is the part that just drives me nuts. He keeps saying that this committee, this committee is all full of Democrats. And it's like the head guy's a Republican. Yeah, the, the, the majority of people who were working with this investigation were Democrats. He called them the 18 angry Democrats, but always failed to remember that this was a Republican led uh, investigation with Robert Mueller. But it's just something that the president decided to not talk about because then it gives his base something to think about by saying, well, potentially there's a Republican going after our Republican president. Man, so you're you're confident that by mid-May we will hear from Mueller. I wouldn't say that I'm confident about it. I would say that what I've heard from uh, people inside the Hill is that they're trying to get Robert Mueller to come and speak within the next couple of weeks. May 15th is the date that has been floated around. Is there any threat to him if he does? Could this somehow uh, be held against him? I mean, it is possible going forward, but, it, you know, Robert Mueller, again, isn't somebody who parses his words and isn't somebody who, you know, kind of speaks vocally. He's a very quiet person. So we would all assume that if he comes to the Hill, he would answer questions to the best of his ability, both from the Democrats and Republicans, and potentially use the, op uh, use the opportunity to shed more light on what he spent a year and a half diving into. You have to think he wants this information out. Well, he obviously wanted this information out, which is why he wrote that letter to the yeah. attorney general by saying, look, the things that you said right now are mischaracterizing what words I put out there. You have to remember, Robert Mueller put a, uh, you know, a summary of each of the parts of his report, gave that to the attorney general and said, I want this summary put out there. But the attorney general wouldn't do it. And instead, without reading all of the facts, put his own summary out there, which is why Robert Mueller would probably want to clear that up. Reggie Giacchini is with us, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington. Make sure you're watching Global tonight, 530 and Six. Reggie, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Thank you, sir. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we were all saddened to find out uh, a few weeks ago that uh, Alex Trebek had been diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer and uh, his courageous fight uh, through that and, uh, and his, um, his challenge and his will to just keep on going and keep producing the show as long as he can. Uh, he did a candid interview uh, the other day about his emotional state and the deep sadness he feels after his chemotherapy uh, treatments. Here's what, uh, here's what Alex Trebek had to say. My oncologist tells me I'm doing well, even though I don't always feel it. Mm. Uh, 
I've had kidney stones, I've had ruptured discs, so I'm used to dealing with pain. But what I'm not used to dealing with is these surges that come on suddenly of deep, deep sadness. And it brings tears to my eyes. I'm, I've discovered in this whole episode, ladies and gentlemen, that I'm a bit of a wuss. Mm. And, uh, but I'm fighting through it. My platelets, my blood counts are steady. My weight is steady. Mm -hmm. uh, the numbers that indicate the cancer, indi the cancer indicators, those are coming down. Good. So I've got another chemo uh, next week. And then we'll do uh, a review to find out where things stand. All right, that is uh, Alex Trebek on Good Morning America with uh, Robin Roberts uh, doing the interview there. Uh, it's amazing how candid this man has become about his journey. Uh, and it's interesting because uh, when he's doing that interview, I thought to myself, and I'm saying to Will, um, it almost sounds like he's on the show and he's explaining this to a contest winner. And and I wonder if he, on, if he just automatically gets into that kind of showbiz mode in order to get through this and, and be able to talk to people uh, the way that he the way that he does and uh, opening up uh, about the uh, as he called it deep sadness that he feels has, has got a lot of people's attention let's bring in Dr. Bill Evans board member of the Hamilton Community Foundation and the Cancer Assistance Program uh, in Hamilton also professor uh, emeritus in uh, at McMaster University and co-host of the Cancer Assist Program right here on 900 CHML Dr. Dr. Bill Evans is with us now. Bill, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, good afternoon to you, Scott. So your thoughts on uh, how Alex Trebek has handled this and his very candid comments that came out yesterday about his sadness. Well, it's very impressive when someone with a diagnosis of cancer and a recent diagnosis of cancer is willing to be out and be so public about it and speak about the experience and have such a brave face. Uh, you really have to admire his courage and how forthright he he is, and I think he's shining a light on something that we probably don't pay enough attention to, uh, which which is the emotional state of cancer patients. So, so much of cancer today, where we've got great uh, treatments for many cancers, not pancreatic cancer. I want to point out very quickly, it's one of the worst, and where progress has been made, perhaps the least. But we focus so much on treating the disease, we sometimes forget to treat the emotional state of the patient, and. And he's uh, underscoring the incredible surges of, of sadness and depression that come over him, and they're probably quite paralyzing. And in fact, probably 25% at least of our patients have significant depression when you study it. And I, I think that myself as a lung oncologist for a lot of my career, I didn't appreciate just how frequent severe depression was in my, my patients. And it only really uh, came to my mind when we started measuring these things on all patients coming into cancer centers and having them fill out a symptom assessment scale called the Edmonton Symptom Assessment Scale. We have an electronic kiosk in every cancer center in this province, and patients are supposed to fill this out, and it measures their depression levels, measures their anxiety, the amount of pain they're having, fatigue, shortness of breath. And if you look at those results, you see just how common depression is and and it could be that we could do a lot more for our patients if we paid attention to those scores is it would it be that these patients have are susceptible to this anyway or just the diagnosis of something is is that can be as terminal as cancer or, or even the drugs that are used that are making them feel this way 
You know, I think it's very complex. Um, first of all, receiving a diagnosis of cancer is a, a sad experience because you recognize your whole life is going to change. At the very least, you know you're going to go through diagnostic procedures and treatments that aren't pleasant and so on. But it's generally, in most people's minds, a life-threatening experience. Yeah. Even for a relatively um, well and easily treated cancers, the, the average person in the public thinks that this is a life threat. So there's that whole aspect of it. But secondly, um, are, are cancer drugs, be they chemotherapy drugs or some of these molecular targeted agents we use today, they themselves can cause people to feel depressed. So there's a, an interplay between one's natural and emotional state and what we're doing by giving chemotherapy or, or hormones or other agents. And then there's a third factor which I, I find interesting that may even have relevance in Alex Trebek's case because he gets this surge of sadness after his treatment. And we're coming to understand that there are cytokines. These are just molecules that respond uh, in inflammation. So when you create inflammation from any cause in the body, these things are released and there's a whole family of them. But the important thing here in the context of cancer is that they can be elevated and in fact rise after a treatment for cancer because you're killing cancer cells. The body reacts to that. There's inflammation. These <clears throat> cytokines are released and they can cause changes in your brain that are perceived as depression. So in trying to interpret what Alex Trebek was describing there, I wonder how, how maybe cytokines released as a result of his chemotherapy treatment are causing this uh, experience of sadness for him. So it's not, because many would think, my goodness, if you were diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, you'd be overcome with sadness and emotion as well. But it's as much the chemical reaction that's going on inside your body as much as the emotional state that you're in knowing you have a terminal, what could be a terminal disease. Yeah, and as I say, it's a sort of a complex interaction. I, I think there, there are people who are naturally positive about life experiences, and there are others who get depressed with minor uh, stressors in their lives, and then when a diagnosis of cancer comes along, they manage it very differently. But then there are these biological aspects, too, in response to the cancer. And even um, cancers like pancreatic cancer are sometimes preceded, preceded by a depression, a non-explained depression without any obvious precipitant factor. And presumably it's because the cancer itself is releasing some of these um, biological chemicals that are causing the person to be depressed. So I think it's it's a complex thing. I think it's been sort of under-researched, and certainly I think we're guilty as oncologists of not per, maybe paying as much attention to it in the clinic. And, and part of that problem is that, in my experience, patients coming to see their oncologists often put on a very brave face. I, I've always been impressed in my practice about the courage the patient shows, and I don't think they necessarily want to tell you that they're feeling down or they're very worried about how things are going uh, with their cancer and their home life and the relationships with their partner and all these other factors. They come in and try to look like things are going fairly positively because that's what they want to project, what they want to hear from the oncologist as well. 
How do we treat this or how should we treat this moving forward, especially considering the light that someone like an Alex Trebek has, has put on this? Is, is there more uh, study needed and ener- energy needed uh, talking about the psychological effect of these diseases? Well, I think there is a, a, a need for more understanding of the fundamental biological changes that lead to one feeling depressed with cancer. And there are some studies in the literature that go into this in some depth, but I think we could do much better and importantly out of that figure out how we can better treat it. Now, there are guidelines about managing depression in cancer. Uh, They basically say managing it much as you would uh, manage it in a non-cancer patient uh, with either uh, counseling or with various pharmaco, uh, pharmacotherapeutics is is they're equally effective, but they're not um, super effective. I would say there there are challenges in getting really good results in the cancer patients. So I think if we understood the the mechanisms behind uh, depression in cancer, we might expand the therapeutic approaches available to us beyond what we're currently using. We talk so many times. Uh, we've talked so many times about uh, obviously the, the side effects of all this and, and how horrible one can feel while going through these treatments from a from a physical standpoint. Now, obviously, um, more from an, an emotional standpoint. Uh, from what you've seen, you know, and some of us, you know, just you know, touch wood, uh, we we haven't had to go through this. Although there's very few you find who haven't had a family member or somebody they know going through this. What's it like for the person to go through this, especially uh, something uh, that is is as uh, as terminal as pancreatic cancer? What sort of what sort of thoughts are these patients having? Well, it will vary with the individual to be sure, but when you have pancreatic cancer, I think first of all, if you're uh, reasonably well-informed and, and are aware of the statistics, it's it's got to pull you down because for many other cancers, you can think optimistically, I'm going to be in the 60% that survive five years or whatever the statistic is, but when you look at pancreatic cancer, it's 3 to 5%. Those are terrible odds. So that in itself is a, a significant barrier. The treatment uh, for it uh, hasn't changed a huge amount in, in the last decade. But if you're a younger patient with pancreatic cancer, we have quite aggressive treatment that does extend survival, but it's it's measured in months. And it's harsh. And so we can't give that to older patients. And pancreatic cancer typically occurs in older individuals. And we have to use less aggressive approaches, which have less efficacy. And those treatments, whether they're the uh, very aggressive for the young person or even the less aggressive for the older individual, have side effects that, you know, range from the nausea and vomiting and diarrhea and fatigue um, to effects on nerves and, and other factors. So you get the physical side effects from the, from the uh, treatment. And then typically the disease progresses, and as it does so, um, you know, you lose weight. And this is one cancer where weight loss is really a very dominant factor. And, you know, people will talk about losing 20 pounds in literally a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And, and they can see it. They get up in the morning, look in the mirror, and they see how gaunt they look. And And that must take a toll psychologically on them because... We like to look at ourselves and think we look healthy. And when you start looking 
like you've lost a lot of weight and you're feeling very fatigued, it's got to really pull you down. So I think having a brave face in the, in the face of all those symptoms, treatment-induced, disease-induced, is very tough. And I think that not only is it tough on the individual patient, but it's tough on the caregivers and, and all the people who surround that individual and family and friends and colleagues and so on because, you know, it, it's hard to go and face someone who's losing a large amount of weight and who's looking skeletonized and, and try to speak positively to them without sounding like you're Pollyannish. So it, it, I think everybody starts to feel sort of uncomfortable. Yeah. And oftentimes um, people become sort of social, socially isolated because their friends and family... Uh, don't know how to um, support them and be around them, so they they keep away. So there's the isolation that may come as well um, with an illness like pancreatic cancer just because of the, the devastation that it causes to the body. Uh, doctor, we've made so much, uh, so many gains in in cancer and cancer research over the years. What would what would once kill somebody now is survivable. Why not with pancreatic cancer? What's the cause? What do we know about it? Well, I have to say, I don't know, and I don't know. <laughs> you know, on yeah. the Cancers This Show, we talk about a lot of cancers where we've made great progress, and and, and I, I really feel it's quite an exciting time for oncologists now because there are so many more effective uh, tools to use in the fight against cancer, and they're really making a difference, and, and new drugs appearing with, with great rapidity. So I'm very optimistic for the future, why pancreatic cancer has been so, so difficult, I don't know. Uh, it may in part be that when you have a disease that's, that's uh, got a bad reputation like pancreatic cancer, that there's less funding for the research to deal with it than there goes to the d- diseases that are considered more positive. And this has been debated for quite a lot of years now about cancers that um, are advocated for um, uh, and are considered diseases that should get more research dollars like breast cancer, uh, prostate cancer, or recently colon cancer. And then there's the sort of common cancers that are considered sort of like bad cancers, maybe somewhat self-induced by lifestyle behaviors like lung cancer that haven't got the research dollars until more recently. And it seems to me pancreatic cancer is a cancer that has not had as much research focused upon it. And if you don't do the research, you don't find out how you can treat something mm. better. And I think that's partly why it's a laggard. So what does uh, what Alex Trebek is doing, what does this do for R&D with this type of cancer? How does this help? Well, I think when uh, people who have uh, the public's attention are out there talking about their illness and with it and the stories of others who have had it like Patrick Swayze and Aretha Franklin, they all had pancreatic cancer and died from it. Um, it may be that it does help uh, focus um, those who are uh, responsible for research funding and so on to direct more resources to pancreatic cancer. A similar phenomenon happened, happened some years ago with the Canadian Cancer Society and its research funding. It was sort of criticized for where it was not directing much funding towards lung cancer. And here it was the biggest killer of Canadians. 
And and because of some criticism and because of some high-profile individuals and lobbying, more research was directed in that way, and we've seen that globally. And, and now we're seeing some significant progress in the in the treatment of lung cancer. And I, I suspect that that might be one benefit from uh, Alex Trebek speaking out. But I think the other possible benefit is that he's shining a light on the the uh, emotional side the, the, that accompanies cancer, the fact that depression can be so profound, even immobilizing. And we need to keep that more in mind as, as oncologists when we see our patients and try to, first of all, help them with it, with whatever means we have. It could be that we need to engage those who are much more expert in the management of of uh, psychological problems like psychologists or social workers or psychiatrists or use some pharmacotherapy, uh, antidepressants, and so on. But I think we also need to, as we were discussing earlier, understand some of the biological mechanisms that may underline depression, not just put it off to, well, it's obvious they're going to be depressed, they've got pancreatic cancer, but there are biological mechanisms underlying this too. Mm. If we understood them better they'd probably figure out some strategies and interventions that um, could counteract the effect of these cytokines on the brain and help people deal with the the depression more effectively. So those are the kind of positive things can come out of uh, Alex Trebek's very brave face and discussion of this uh, on uh, morning television the last few days. Dr. Bill Evans has been with us, board member of the Hamilton Community Foundation and the Cancer Assistance Program in Hamilton, also Professor Emeritus in the Department of Oncology at McMaster and co-host of the Cancer Assistance Program right here on CHML. Dr. Bill Evans, thank you so much for the time and insight. Greatly appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.